Welcome to the Insights at ULAR 2020 series, brought to you by the Cytokine Signaling Forum, where authors review their Congress posters and presentations on cytokine signaling and JAK inhibitors. My name is Dr. Len Calabrese. I'm a professor of medicine at the Cleveland Clinic. This edition focuses on JAK inhibitors and emerging treatments in the therapy areas beyond RA, featuring presentations from Professor Peter Nash, Professor Xenophon Baraliakos, Professor Atul Diadar, and Professor David Eisenberg. In the first presentation, Professor Nash reviews tofacitinib as monotherapy following methotrexate withdrawal in patients with psoriatic arthritis previously treated with open-label tofacitinib plus methotrexate. This is one of those questions where the uh, JAK inhibitors are being used in psoriatic arthritis, and the question is, do you need methotrexate or can you get away with monotherapy? And that's what this randomized placebo-controlled sub-study is all about. So they're all my disclosures and the disclosures of the other colleagues, and I'm presenting this on behalf of the other colleagues. Now, it's been one of those questions as to whether you need methotrexate with the TNF, for example, in psoriatic arthritis, um, the Swedish registry, the Corona registry, has suggested that for adalimumab and for etanercept, you don't need methotrexate to maintain drug survival as a surrogate for continuing efficacy, efficacy and no adverse events leading to discontinuation. Uh, except the exception is infliximab, where clearly methotrexate is required to reduce immunogenicity. But it's never been studied before with the JAK inhibitors. And uh, as you know, tofacitinib is an oral JAK inhibitor, now available for the treatment of psoriatic arthritis in many countries around the world. And uh, this is the first randomized clinical trial to have a look at it. Now, it is a sub-study, and it's a study of opal balance. And we'll talk about opal balance. Now, opal balance are the patients from the Opal Broaden, the MTXIR-PSA study with tofacitinib, and the patients from Opal Beyond, which was a TNFIR study. And those patients who had completed those studies and were doing well were invited to continue in an open-label extension. And Opal Balance is that open-label extension that looks at um, patients who participated in the phase three studies. They received open-label TOFA, 5 milligrams BD, um, and you were allowed to continue your background concomitant treatments, conventional systemic DMARDs, um, a very stable low dose of prednisone, uh, NSAID, but you didn't have to stay on NSAID. So they took patients in this sub-study who'd completed two years of TOFA therapy in the long-term extension, those patients who were stable on tofacitinib five milligrams um, twice a day for three months, and patients who received oral methotrexate for at least a month. Um, and it was a blinded study, and the primary point was at six months, and the primary point was the change in um, PASDAS, the disease activity score that Grappa um, is keen on, and also an FDA a mandated requirement of change in HAC. It's always amused me that you that they force people to include HAC, especially when patients have had long duration disease, 
with quite an irreversible element of hack, but anyway. Now, it wasn't powered for statistical significance. This was an estimation study looking at non-inferiority, and the non-inferiority margin was 12%, and they were looking at continuous efficacy endpoints, and um, it was really approximation of difference in the two, in the binomial proportions um, between the two arms. Now, most patients, very few dropouts, most patients stayed in the uh, sub-study. And you can see the patient demographics there. Um, disease duration was like 11 years. It's come from all over the country um, and smoking and non-smoking. They had well-controlled diseases, different to a study that you go in flaring or having active disease. You can see that the 60% uh, were in minimal disease activity at baseline. You can see that the mean pastas was in the uh, low disease activity range, less than 3.2. 63% of them were well-controlled. Small percentages had some enthesitis, 17%, and even less had dactylitis, 1%. Um, hardly any swollen joints. So these were patients who were doing very well and were stable, one on methotrexate plus TOFA, the other placebo plus TOFA, and they were followed along to see what would happen. And the bottom line is um, there was really very little clinically meaningful difference over the 12 months of follow-up whether you continued your placebo, whether you continued tofacitinib as monotherapy or you continued tofacitinib plus methotrexate. There wasn't much in the way of a sign of flare. There wasn't much in the way of sign of loss of efficacy. The hacks remained comparable. The pastas remained comparable. The minimal disease activity persisted comparably out to 12 months. And this methotrexate was stopped abruptly. It wasn't tapered over weeks. Um, the absence of enthesitis, enthesitis didn't come roaring back. And the same with dactylitis didn't come roaring back. Um, they looked at a number of uh, change measures, leads, enthesitis index, dactylitis scores, swollen joint counts. Um, the only one that was uh, didn't stay 100% uh, equal between the two was physician global assessment of skin rash. But um, otherwise, pain scores, SF36, fatigue, they couldn't separate them from an inferiority point of view between the two arms of the study. So there didn't seem to be a penalty for withdrawing the methotrexate. And the next part of the study moving forward is to analyze those patients who did flare, whether you could recapture them by adding the methotrexate back in. From a safety point of view, the serious adverse effects were very similar, um, especially some of the, the more common ones and um, the important point really is there was no DVT, VTE signal. Again, we're not talking many patients. We're talking 180-odd patients followed for 12 months. There was um, mainly one zoster case. There was none of the other things, uh, MACE and those other things. Uh, and the only thing that was a little different was that if you were on the combination of methotrexate and tofacitinib, you had uh, higher rates of abnormal liver function tests as has been shown if you combine a TNF with methotrexate. Um, so placebo, TOFA, TOFA plus MTX, more abnormal liver functions. As far as um, neutrophils under 1,000, as far as lymphocytes under 500, they were really pretty uncommon and pretty evenly matched in both arms. 
So the limitations really are that it wasn't powered to be a superiority design. The people have been doing very well on long-term therapy. They're tolerating their medication. And it's really just a question of can you stop methotrexate without loss of efficacy over the next 6 to 12 months? And the answer was yes, you could in these patients. And going forward, we'll look to see who flared, who worsened their skin, and whether um, you can recapture them if you add the methotrexate back in. So that's the uh, oral study that's being presented. Um, and the safety profile was pretty similar between each arm, except for more abnormalities of liver function tests in the combination of methotrexate plus tofacitinib. So that some of your patients are doing very well on tofa and they're keen to get off the methotrexate. You can do that without an adverse impact on their overall disease activity or health-related quality of life. And then the next step will be to test whether those that do flare, whether you can go recapture them with methotrexate. So that's the study. Thank you very much. Now, Professor Diodar and Professor Baraliakos will explore JAK inhibitors as emerging treatments in the axial spondyloarthropathies. is uh, Atul Devdar. Uh, I'm a professor of medicine and a rheumatologist at Oregon Health and Science University uh, in Portland, Oregon. And uh, the abstract that I'm going to present is uh, the first author is uh, Dr. Yuta Kiltz um, and the second author is Dr. Joachim Sieper. Uh, then it's me, then there are uh, Patrick Zuger, Inho Song uh, and Dr. Chen. These are from the sponsor company at V. And Dr. Desiree van der Heide, uh, Professor van der Heide is the senior author. And this is about uh, upadacitinib, the select axis one trial that is already published in the Lancet. Uh, and we, this is a post hoc analysis. The title of our abstract is Improvements in Global Functioning and Health Related Quality of Life and Their Association with Disease Activity and Functional Improvement in Patients with Active ankylosing spondylitis treated with uh, upadacitinib. <clears throat> now, the ultimate goal of treating ankylosing spondylitis, or for that matter, any disease, is to improve the health-related quality of life. This is a bigger concept than just improving the signs and symptoms and improving the function and stopping the radiographic progression. All of those things, improving pain and stiffness and sleep and uh, uh, stopping the radiographic progression and improving the function ultimately leads to health-related quality of life. And that's a bigger concept than anything else. And so there are two um, tools for ankylosing spondylitis patients, health-related quality of life. One is the ASAS Health Index, which is a newer uh, tool. It has got 17 questions. And then slightly older tool is uh, the ASAS Quality of Life itself. So AS qual <clears throat> and that is about 18 questions and those are questions that the patient fills out and they measure the health related quality of life in patients with ankylosing spondylitis. The reason why we were doing this post hoc analysis on a trial select access one that's already been done was to evaluate the effect of upadacitinib on these health related quality of life measures both of them <clears throat> quite similar to each other. And secondly, we wanted to see the improvements in these health-related quality of life. How does that correlate with the other things, which I just now said, disease activity, physical function, etc. 
So this was a post-hoc analysis. Uh, Selectron Axis uh, is a multi-center randomized control trial already published, as I said, in Lancet. Uh, typical patients with ankylosing spondylitis, adult patients, active ankylosing spondylitis, which means the BASDI, uh, Bath ankylosing spondylitis, disease activity index of more than four, back pain more than four, they had failed on steroids, etc. Um, and then we were looking at uh, uh, the uh, health index, the uh, ACE health index and AS quality of life at week four, well, baseline, week four, week eight, and week 14. Week 14 was a, that was the placebo controlled part of the trial. It actually went up to a year. We wanted to see the percentage of patients achieving ASAS health index and ASAS, AS quality of life scores above the minimal clinically important difference, MCID, and that is more than three points improvement in both these measures. We also wanted to see the achievement of ASAS health index, good health state. So I told you it's kind of 17 questions and the score, so lower the score for both of these, lower the score, the better. Okay, so. SS health index score of less than five is thought to be good health state. There is another thing called PASS, P-A-S-S, patient acceptable symptom state. Um, and that for AS quality of life is score less than eight. Uh, and we wanted to see uh, what percentage of patients were achieving the AS quality of life patient acceptable symptom state. And we were going to see the correlation between these improvements in these health-related quality of life, along with uh, looking at the uh, <clears throat> the function, the uh, signs and symptoms, and achieving those. So that's the ASAS response criteria, ASDAS, and BASFI. Uh, the table one, uh, which shows baseline characteristics, these have already been published, as I said, in Lancet, between placebo and upadacitinib, and those were quite comparable. The figure one uh, in this abstract shows the change in ASAS health index from baseline by visit. And as I said, we go up to week 14 because that's the placebo control trial. And as, it, as you can see from figure one shows the ASAS health index, figure two shows the change in the AS quality of life. And as you can see at uh, week 14, the upiracetinib treated group was clearly superior statistically significantly different compared to placebo in the drop in ASAS health index. As I said, improvement is reduction in both these scores, both ASAS health index and AS quality of life. Figure three shows the MCID, the minimal clinical important difference. What percentage of patients with ankylosing spondylitis achieved the minimal clinically important difference? For ASAS health index, it was nearly 45%. For AS quality of life, it was 61%. So we still have a lot of uh, ground to cover. Of course, this is week 14. But by week 14, clearly there is nearly half of the population is getting more than minimum clinical important difference. Figure four shows the achievement of this ASAS health index, good health state, which is the score of less than five. Again, showing about 46, sorry, 45% of the patients achieve the SS health index, good health state with upadacitinib compared to only 20%, 21% in the placebo. We then wanted to see the correlation between these two health related quality of life, the big concept with other things like their signs and symptoms, their disease activity, their function. How do, those, do these things correlate? So <clears throat> figure five is very interesting. 
figure five looks at the ASS health index score by disease activity and physical function improvement thresholds. So we took patients who were who didn't respond at all by our usual signs and symptoms. So ASAS 20 is 20% 20 improvement in certain criteria, pain and function, and etc. Those patients who did not even get ASAS 20, compare them with those who got better than ASAS 40. So worst, those didn't really get any improvement versus those who got excellent improvement. And what happens to the uh, change in the ASS health index in those people. And we see a 43-fold increase. So patients between those who didn't get any response versus those who got very, very good response. 43-fold increase in the quality of life. If you look at the ASS 2040 responses. The same thing for ASDAS, which is the ankylosing spondylitis disease activity score. Those who had no improvement, which is less than 1.1, compared to those who had major improvement, which is the change of more than two, five-fold increase in the SS health index. Same thing looking at BASFI, the function. As I said, health-related quality of life is bigger than function. So those who had no improvement in uh, the function, the bath ankylosing spondylitis functional index, no improvement is less than 0.6 or more than 0 0.6. There was a 34-fold increase. Figure 6 shows the same thing. Though in ASAS quality of life, ASAS responses, improvement in ASDAS and BASFI MCID. Here, there are again these good increases. They are not as spectacular as in ASAS health index. And this point is important. Here, there is a seven-fold increase in ASAS response or seven-fold difference. There is uh, between the ASAS responses, three-point or four-fold inc response uh, increase in the ASDAS. Uh, and about 10-fold increase in the BAS fee. So <clears throat> figure seven um, shows the achievement of the ASAS health index, good health state. This is the score, total score. This is the status, total score of less than five. And what is the relationship of that with the disease activity? So here now we are looking at ASDAS in figure seven. ASDAS is the disease activity, those who had inactive disease, 93% of the patients, those who had inactive disease, had the ASAS health index good health state. Compared to those who had very high disease activity, this is ASDAS of more than 3.5, they had high disease activity, still 16% of the people, in fact, interestingly, had good health status because their ASAS health index was, uh, ASAS, uh, uh, health index was less than five. So this is a six-fold increase. And the same thing looking at achieve uh, the uh, uh, how many, what percentage achieved the BASDI pass, uh, which is the patient accepted symptom state, which is shown there, and also BASFI uh, achievement of pass. And the last figure is the figure eight, where we are looking at the AS quality of life. Here we are looking at the patient accepted symptom state because there is no, um, uh, there isn't anything equivalent to the good health state as we have with the uh, with AS quality of life, we have the good health state with the AS health index. The bottom line is that upadacetinib treatment in patients with active ankylosing spondylitis, these are the conclusions, resulted in clinically meaningful improvements compared with placebo in global functioning and health-related quality of life as measured by both these indices, ASS health index and AS quality of life. Both of these show discriminatory ability across known groups based on their 
patient's disease activity, physical function. So they can discriminate between a, those who get ACEs20 response or those who don't get that response compared to those who get ACEs40 response, etc. Or also those who get good function response, those who don't get. So they're both discriminatory. However, we find that AS health index is more discriminatory. The uh, the percent, the fold increase, 43 fold increase, etc. That is much higher. So the magnitude of change uh, between the best and the worst known group categories suggests that ACS health index may get, uh, may demonstrate a greater responsiveness. Um, <clears throat> so I will end there. Uh, thank you for listening. Hello, my name is Xenophon Baraliakos. I am referring to our abstract on the impact of the JAK inhibitor filgotinib on the structural changes of the sacroiliac joints after well 12 weeks of treatment in patients with active axial spondylarthritis. These data are presented as a poster at this ULAS Congress. And what we have done in that study was to take patients who had established ankylosing spondylitis and high disease activity and were in need for treatment of an additional um, if a treatment with an additional treatment beyond non-steroidals. We all know that we have TNF blockers and also know that the IL-17 blockers are now very well established in the treatment of ankylosing spondylitis. However, we also have new molecules like, for example, the small molecules of JAK inhibitors and filgotinib is one selective JAK inhibitor in this field. What we did, in, particularly in that study, beyond um, the treatment effect, which is uh, well established in the meantime and has been published previously, was to check additional effects of that compound in the structural changes in the sacroiliac joints of patients with ankylosing spondylitis, and as mentioned in the beginning. Why is that important? It is important because we know that although we are decreasing inflammatory activity depicted by MRI, we also not want to know by any kind of compound we are using in these patients what happens to the structural damage. What we did in particular was to take 116 patients who were randomized initially to almost 60 and 60 to filgotinib and placebo and were compared and were treated for 12 weeks. Overall, 107, again, almost half-half completed the study. We had the MRIs of uh, all the patients who um, you know, participated, and what we did was to, again, go beyond inflammation and um, capture the structural changes on MRI, such as fatty lesions, erosions, what we call backfill, which is kind of a repair mechanism or a repair tissue coming up in the sacroiliac joints, and also ankylosis. What we found out was that, and overall this is being shown pretty nicely um, in, this, in the poster by cumulative probability plus, was that um, overall patients who had, who had been treated with filgotinib had an increase as compared to placebo in the fatty lesions and a decrease in the erosions. We also saw an increase in the so-called backfill as a sign of repair mechanism. This has two implications. The first implication is that we see that indeed the decrease of inflammatory activity is obviously associated with a very fast repair 
mechanism in the areas where previously inflammation had um, been visible and now it's gone. And the other thing is that we need um, to understand better, and this is actually food for thought based on this data, what exactly this will be as an impact in the future of these patients. We do not believe that this necessarily presents a negative result because, for example, fatty lesions have increased and erosions have decreased, which may imply that there is a um, mobility or mobilization of the local tissue towards new bone formation, but rather believe that this is a fast repair that is happening localized in these areas. And of course, we need to say that this study has assessed the patients over 12 weeks only. We, of course, need to understand what will happen to all these patients, either treated or, of course, also untreated in case there is any such comparison with a historical cohort in the long term. So overall, we can say that in addition to what we have known from previously decreased data on the decrease of, of inflammation in the sacroiliac joints, the Gottenich has shown in this study an association with significant reduction of the erosions and increase in back pain scores at week 12, as compared to placebo always. Again, we have a short period of time. We need to understand exactly what this means in the long run. And of course, we also need to understand the potential prognostic implications of these findings and their correlation to clinical outcomes later on. We are also analyzing now the spinal MRIs of the same patients to draw more conclusions. Our final presentation is from Professor David Eisenberg, who reviews the efficacy and safety of BTK inhibitor fenbrutinib in severe SLE. So my name is Professor David Eisenberg. I'm the Academic Director of Rheumatology at University College London, uh, and I'm presenting some work at ULA on behalf of a large number of investigators, uh, including colleagues from the AstraZeneca company. And we've been looking at the efficacy, the safety, and the pharmacodynamic effects of a Bruton's tyrosine kinase inhibitor known as fenibrutinib. This is in patients with moderate to severe systemic lupus. It's a phase two trial. Uh, and the Bruton tyrosine kinase, the BTK, is a very key signaling molecule for B cells and myeloid cells. And since we know that lupus patients have very disturbed B cell function, it's become a very uh, obvious target uh, to go after for the potential treatment of patients with lupus. It's highly selective, it's an oral inhibitor of BTK, and it's been used successfully in patients with rheumatoid arthritis. Now, the trial was a very classical sort of three-arm study. Uh, the patients had to have a, a CD, CDA2K of more than eight points to get in and also to be on at least one of the standard of care treatments for lupus. And the patients um, meeting that, that level of uh, disease activity uh, were either given placebo or they were given fenobrutinib, uh, 200 milligrams twice a day uh, or 150 milligrams daily. Uh, and the patients were encouraged to taper in two taper windows in the course of the 48 weeks, uh, one at the start uh, from the first few weeks and then from week 24 onwards for a few weeks. Uh, and I should say the, the, the taper was not mandated but encouraged. Uh, now, serologically, these patients, these patients were very well matched in terms of their serology, ANA, anti-SM antibodies, antibodies to DNA, low C3, low C4, very close matching between the three groups. Uh, 
in terms of the withdrawals uh, from the study, these are also very well matched in terms of the numbers of patients who discontinued in the placebo and in the two phenobrutinic uh, groups, both in terms of patient withdrawal and adverse events. Very little difference between the two of them, between the three groups, I should say. Uh, in terms of effects, the primary response we were looking for here was an SRI4 uh, after uh, 48 weeks. Now, uh, frustratingly, although there was a gap, a delta between the two fenibrutin groups and the placebo group of about 7 to 8%, this was not sufficient to meet the p-value, which was statistically significant. And the same was true with the BICLAR, although interestingly with the 150 milligram daily group, the delta was actually 12 points, 53% uh, meeting it against 41% in the placebo group. But that too, although it approached a significant value, was not statistically significant. Uh, in terms of safety data, uh, there were a number of serious adverse events, but pretty similar between the three groups. Slightly higher with the fenbrutinib, 200 milligrams BD, uh, but the serious infections were higher in the placebo group than in the fenbrutinib group. And there was no obvious pattern that we could observe when we looked in detail at the infection uh, and the serious adverse event, uh, events between the three groups. What was interesting though was when you looked at the subgroup analyses, we actually found some encouraging trends. So for example, if we selected out the patients who had at least one Biolag A and high DNA binding, a very obvious trend was seen in that the patients given the Fembutinib 200 milligrams BD uh, reached the SRI4 65-70% uh, compared to less than 40% in the placebo group uh, with the 150 milligram daily group uh, somewhere in the middle. And the same sort of trend to improvement was also seen in patients who had arthritis as defined by the SLEDE, uh, either with swollen joints or with tender joints. And also using the classy, we saw again, a trend to improvement. Uh, again, not statistically significant, but the trends are definitely there in, in, in the graphs. Uh, when we looked at the serological effects, we found profound effects on the plasma blast RNA signature. Uh, the two fenobrutinib group treated patients had clearly uh, responded to very dramatic falls that we did not observe with the, with the uh, placebo group. And likewise, when we looked at the disease biomarkers, we saw distinct trends, to, which were statistically significant in this case, to a dropping in the DNA binding and a rise in the C4 by week 48. And again, a trend, although it was not statistically significant, in the C3 group. So we concluded that the fenbrutinib did not demonstrate improved efficacy compared to the placebo in patients with active lupus on background standard of care therapy, utilizing the primary endpoint of the SRI4 at week 48. It was not met. Um, we did see, uh, however, that in certain of the subgroups when we selected them out, uh, significant reductions in autoantibodies and increases in C4 with the fenbrutinib treated patients compared to the placebo, but this unfortunately hadn't translated into clinical benefits. Uh, we did not see any uh, untoward um, uh, safety issues with the fenbrutinib group of, of patients. So in the end, it, it kind of resembled a number of other trials that have been published pre previously using other modalities of therapy, where you see that the drug has clearly had a profound immunological and serological effect, but it hadn't sort of tipped over into clinical benefit. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this edition of Insights at ULAR 2020. Make sure to subscribe to the CSF podcast channel on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or wherever you get your podcasts from, so you don't miss out on our other ULAR 2020 content. 
Subscribe now to listen to condensed daily highlights of the ULAR Congress, in addition to a complete Congress review presented by Professor Rike Alton and Professor Thomas Dorner. If you found this informative, why not listen to our regular podcasts, which include author interviews and monthly reviews of the latest cytokine signaling papers hosted by the CSF chairman, Professor Ian McInnes. You can also visit cytokinesignaling.com for access to a wide range of free educational resources, including monthly slide summaries of the latest papers and accredited CME courses. Thank <laughs> you.